Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Busy time in sports, NHL, NBA playoffs, Major League Baseball, Week 3, NFL never sleeps with the draft, NASCAR going, golf going. All of those issues to be discussed by the worldwide global digital editor, Dan Calaruso. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Rick. I'm glad to be back in the seat with you this week. I took, took a week off last week, and Amy was nice enough to fill in for us, so I'm back in the saddle. Amy was awesome, and those uh, international people who don't know baseball will not know Wally Pipp. Uh, he was back in the seat for a minute and gave up his seat to Lou Gehrig, and he never played again. How do you, does that make yeah. you feel? It makes me feel worried. Um, I'm worried that, uh, that I'm done, that this, my time on this podcast will be short. Nothing to worry about as long as I'm here, my friend. NHL teams have nothing to worry about this year because last year there were no Canadian teams in the playoffs with the NHL. This year... Canadians, Senators, Oilers, Flames, and Maple Leafs. And so the Rogers ratings, which is, after all, a big deal with the NHL because they had a 12-year, $5.2 billion TV deal, they went down 61% last year in the playoffs because of the lack of Canadian teams. Too early to tell what happens this year, but it's got to be better, huh? I find that amazing. And when, when you, I saw your notes with that 61% drop in the postseason viewers last year, I, you know, I look at, at hockey, at the NHL in particular, as North American instead of American and Canadian. For you to tell me there's a tangible impact when these teams are in the playoffs is, is really surprising. What's the, the win in terms of these teams being in? Is it purely TV ratings? Is it keeping the franchises in a position to build better arenas, to attract more fans? Is it merchandise? Is it everything? Um, because for a while, Canadian hockey, because of tax rates, players didn't want to play there, teams didn't stay for a bit, and to hear it's coming back, it, 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 was there anything that made it come back? Yes, yes, and yes to all of that. Uh, the, the rule of thumb, by the way, is if you have three home games, meaning your first series uh, has to go uh, six, uh, basically, uh, you're going to recoup dollars to basically make or break the reason for being in the playoffs. And so that's why everybody is on pins and needles, not only the teams that are leading, but they really kind of don't want a sweep because those games six and seven are really, really important economically. Now, in Canada, your quick answer is you and I look at North America for the hockey map. Canadians look at Canada first, and then they'll get around to looking at the other parts of the the world second. But aren't there enough Canadians on American NHL teams for them to stay interested? Interested, yes. <laughs> Interested to watch the games from beginning to end, no. Wow. That's tough. That's yeah. a tough equation for, for the NHL. You know, that's not a that's not a I, I don't think you'd see a commensurate rise with more American teams in, in you know in the playoffs, a commensurate rise in ratings or revenue. So that's a that's a, a dangerous situation. Thin ice, as one might say. Thin ice, very metaphorical. But by the way, let's remember that last year was a terrible year for Canadian teams. It's been a long time since there were none in the playoffs. So maybe it's critical mass and the whole country says, Yeah, wait till next year and they've been rewarded because they got five and five you know, really good teams, and some of them may get to the next round. So let's stay international for a couple of minutes. Um, English Premier League side Everton trying to build their new stadium. And 
their people are telling us what we all know, which is that if you want a kit deal, which is a big sponsorship or a naming deal, you better spend a lot of money. And in Everton, they're talking about a $437 million uh, stadium in Liverpool to help them win the 2022 Commonwealth Games. And they're saying, yeah, you got to build a new stadium or we may not be as lucky to get naming rights or kit sponsorship deals in the future. What do you think of that? I didn't realize that this phenomena had carried over to the to the Premier League. Uh, I thought it was purely a U.S. phenomena around the Big Four, Big Five sports. It, it is interesting to me that you know that now you'll have these teams kind of trying to squeeze more. I think you mentioned that they need to have they're going to have a running track around, and um, they're going to try and squeeze more, make these facilities, uh, get some public money by making them more than just a football stadium or a pitch, right? That's, pitch. that's the field they call it. Very pitch, well right? done. Pitch. Um, I, I tried my best. It is interesting to me that that economic model has gone across, and especially because I guess the sponsorship deals are the main economic driver for these teams, right? Yeah, a- a- they are, because it becomes a deal to help them win the Commonwealth Games, which are tremendous economic impact drivers in Canada, UK, and all over the English Commonwealth, so to speak. They rewrite history for purposes of those games. But, you know, you got to build facilities and you got to take the next step, which which kind of leads you to the northwest part of our country. Uh, Seattle put out bids. They're preparing to look at which one of these bids will win. And each of them says they're willing to spend more than half a billion dollars apiece to renovate the existing building, get a new facility worthy of a new NBA or NHL team in Seattle. And ironically, one of those bids is supported by Pearl Jam, who once sued Live Nation over monopolistic ticket practices, and that's part of the partnership there. So you want change? Right, Live Nation is part of one of the groups, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. So you want change? Uh, you wait 20 years. And, and also, as far as Seattle is concerned, if you want an NBA or NHL team, you got to build a, a facility. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I always thought that they need a team to build a facility, but it's a chicken and an egg thing. I think one of our producers was telling me earlier, Kansas City built an arena with the hopes of getting a team, and it never quite transpired. What's the risk? I mean, how, how if you're sitting on the side of the table with one of these partnerships, what's the risk parameter you look at? What's the risk-reward ratio you look at in, try, in building an arena without a team being there? Well, and it, 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 it depends on what you build the arena for. I, I know it sounds like an it depends answer, but I'm sitting here in the middle of downtown St. Louis, who is now suing the NFL over the loss of the Rams. And I was struck by driving in here a few minutes ago where they had Ram logo, Edward Jones Dome. Now it's the America Center Convention Center. They took all the stuff off the building and they're in that the middle quick, of a lawsuit. Yeah. You know, then uh, Oklahoma City, which is a, a, a great uh, promo for uh, a Facebook we're, we're dealing with on, on, uh, on uh, a Friday, uh, the mayor, uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder, they'll tell the story 25 years ago of having an urban development initiative called MAPS, where the arena was part of the package and everybody voted for it, but they didn't expect a team. They needed a community arena for concerts and everything else, and the result was a debt-free arena easier to track the franchise, the Thunder holding a playoff game against the Rockets as a consequence. So it depends on what the circumstances are, but you've got to be very protective, as you know, Dan, because these are big dollars. These are big public dollars. Well, right. That's what I'm, that's what I'm wondering. Like, you know, what, after you build that arena, there's a spend, I guess, in trying to market and bring somebody and bring a team in or find a team that's vulnerable uh, or a city that's vulnerable in this case, you know, to attract you because neither team, neither league, any NBA or NHL is planning on expanding, right? It, right. 
And Seattle is one of those cities where when the Supersonics left to go to Oklahoma City, the commissioner all but promised a team if a facility were done. Seattle is unlike a lot of other candidates. It is geographically isolated, meaning it'll have a great territory. Boeing, Microsoft, Starbucks, all the big guys are there. Oh, it's a perfect, it's a perfect spot. I mean, if you think about the local economy, the affluent, you know, male-dominated kind of population, you know, it's a tech center, so that skews more male. I mean, it is a, it's a gold mine. And the fact that the, that they couldn't keep the Sonics more goes to like mismanagement than the actual viability, right, of the city to maintain a franchise. You know, some towns are on the bubble. You know, if you looked at Oklahoma City, you know, they could support an NBA team, but beyond that, they probably couldn't support another major franchise, uh, or, you w- or it would be a crapshoot at least. Here, it's Seattle. You, Seattle's a big-time town. It has the biggest companies in America. There's no reason for it not to have an NBA team. There's no reason for it not to have an NHL team. Absolutely. Point, counterpoint, a couple days from now, we talk to the mayor and the Thunder guys and say, you know, what do you think, what's the message in Seattle? (laughs) People in Seattle aren't going to care what people in Oklahoma City say. They lost their team there, but the bottom line is you build an arena, you get another team. And so it'll be an interesting dynamic going there in two days as well. Two quick questions for you. I promise I'm going to ask two and not say two and ask five. But in what kind of shape is that key arena now? Like these renovations, is it going to mean like a Madison Square Garden glass enclosed walkway? Is it going to mean a new suite of luxury boxes? Or is it a gut reno, like new new dome, new ceiling, I mean, new roof? It, what, what, how extensive are the changes at $500 million? What, is, what does a billion dollars get you? Well, a billion dollars or $500 million for two groups that talk about the same thing are uh, total gut. Uh, gutting. Mm. The iconic roof and the general exterior are preserved. So you preserve the outside so it looks like the old key arena, but guarantee you uh, point of sales, concessions, locker room space, the stuff the teams care about will be totally different. And so that's why you spend a half a million billion dollars in Seattle to try to get that done. Right. Um, And the second question is, who's the most vulnerable? Who's likely to end up in Seattle? Just look in your crystal ball. We're not going to hold you to it. But if you looked at the NBA and NHL, I, I don't know if we're talking NHL, but if you look at those two leagues, who would you, if we had a pool, um, who would you bet on to be in Seattle in five years? Uh, Coyotes, unless they get their act together, NHL, NBA, everybody looks pretty strong right now. I think Seattle would get a team, but they would get one in the expansion route. If you remember, Seattle was destined to get an NHL expansion team. They didn't have an arena done deal done. They went to Vegas. So I think either league would create an expansion process and put a deal together. Okay. Can I offer, on behalf of New York City, can I offer the, the Knicks to Seattle? Yeah. Okay. I, but, <laughs> no, but there's a minimum. you gotta be an N, you, you got to be an NBA-quality franchise to, oh, get, a, okay. to get there. Well, well, then we'll offer them to the Big Ten or something like <laughs> that. Well, nobody will take oh. them, man. That's a nice <laughs> idea, but nobody will take them. So – Let's, let's shift sports for a minute because the NFL draft coming up, the NFL never sleeps. The draft is in Philly. It is in the uh, Art Center. 250,000 people expected to be there. The 19th draft in a couple of years. Philly, again, Canton, Ohio Hall of Fame. Dallas, we'll talk about them in a minute. Denver, Kansas City, Green Bay, Jacksonville, L.A., they want the old economic impact from the draft, maybe $60, $80 million. And by the way, the people who were managing Radio City Music Hall, who started to play tough guy with the NFL in their original lease, they are ruining the day that they allowed them to leave. They'll want them back. 
It's hard to mess with the NFL, isn't it? It is impossible to I mess mean, with the NFL. <laughs> I mean, they know where they want to go. And 60 to $80 million to the NFL is, you know, as Ron Darling once said, dog track money. Right. right. But... But to a city to get a little to get an injection of sixty to eighty million in what a week? Yeah, and how about the excitement, Dan? I mean, you know, Green Bay would embrace it tremendously. Canton, Ohio, Hall of Fame legacy, tremendously. Philadelphia is doing it now. Chicago did it for a couple of years. Kansas City, Jacksonville yeah. needs something. L.A. wants something. So, and, and then by the way, we get to Dallas, and in Dallas, uh, Stephen Jones was was an amazing interview. Uh, as we know, he's the EVP CEO, Director of Player Personnel for the Cowboys, basically uh, runs everything business-wise. Uh, he is uh, uh, Jerry Jones's kid, went to University of Arkansas. And, but get this, we talked about in the interview, he has a degree in chemical engineering, graduated there in 88. Doesn't his father as well? Yeah, they bought, and by the way... Because the, they were an oil man, he was an oil, oil man, man originally. that's right? why. Yeah. Um, he started in the 1987 Orange Bowl for Arkansas, following in the family tradition, and, and he's a tremendous guy, and he talks, by the way, about that tr- uh, world headquarters they built in Frisco, Texas, for $150 million, and AT&T Stadium, and the Cowboys brand, and the star. If you wanted to talk about the most exciting business in sports today... You probably talk about the Cubs and the Cowboys in the same breath. They're essentially like the Cubs. If you think of Chris Br- on the field, if you think of Chris Bryant and Rizzo or one of those great young Cubs players, and you look at uh, the Cowboys with Ezekiel and Prescott, I mean, they have this great young foundation, a young, relatively cheap foundation. It makes it even that much more of an interesting business proposition for those guys to look at a year where they might win a Super Bowl while they're, quarter- they're paying a quarterback like league minimum. Yeah, and... Um, they use it as leverage to build all over Dallas, to build their international brand, to open their facility in, in Frisco, to spread the word. When he was an original owner, Jerry Jones had some controversy with the NFL about the Dallas star and what it means, but they've come a long, long way. Stephen Jones, incredibly interesting human being, and here he is now. Stephen Jones is the EVP and CEO, the Director of Player and Personnel for the Cowboys, but he's so much more, University of Arkansas, degree in chemical engineering in 88. We'll talk about some of that stuff, and he's you know, giving us a really significant part of his time and as the team figures out who to draft in their future. Stephen, thank you for the time, and thank you for being with us. Well, Rick, what a, a very nice introduction. I'll take that every time, but uh, exciting time of year for us. Uh, you know, it never stops. It's a year-round uh, uh, extravaganza now when you're talking about the Dallas Cowboys and the different things we're involved in, but it's a especially exciting time of, time of year with the draft. I think all our fans enjoy it, and uh, obviously we're looking to improve our football team. Well, clearly, and you'll improve your football team, and your football team is a centerpiece, but it's only one aspect of, a, of an incredible worldwide entertainment conglomerate that all of our listeners will really appreciate. But my question first is, the guy gets a degree in chemical engineering. Now I'm a lawyer, and I understand that we uh, we depend on, on on using the word depend. You know, you put the stuff in the wrong beaker, you blow up the place. How, how do you go from being so you got to be right, you got to be wrong, into such a visionary entrepreneur? They're two different uh, sides of the brain, aren't they? Well, believe it or not, uh, you know what pushed me to chemical engineering is uh, uh, I had a chance to go to Princeton right out of high school, but I also. Uh, got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas from Coach Holtz, and I was dead set on seeing if I could play in a big stage, on a big stage, like the University of Arkansas, and 
my father was really pushing me to go to uh, Princeton. And uh, so our compromise was I'd take something challenging uh, other than a, a typical business degree that I would do something challenging. And our goal at the time were, was that we were going to be in business, uh, in the energy business, the oil and gas business. And they didn't have petroleum engineering at Arkansas. They had chemical, and it just so happened it was challenging and a uh, probably the hardest degree on campus. And so we shook hands, and I told him I'd go that route and uh, learn a little technical side of the world and uh, hopefully be able to contribute in that way in our oil and gas business as well as, uh, as he said at the time, between your two grandfathers and myself, if we can't get the business side and the entrepreneurial side, ingrained in your head, then shame on us. So that was our compromise. Well, but the compromise worked out well for all concerned. Do people in Arkansas know that a guy who started in the 87 Orange Bowl game and somebody who had uh, real special athletic talents anyway, his dad pushed him to go to Princeton away from the famed Razorbacks? Do people, is this a dirty little secret, or, or does everybody know? It's probably a little bit uh, on the dirty little secret side because uh, – he was proud. He played at the University of Arkansas, and I think uh, the compromise ended up good for everybody. But uh, I'm not so sure how many people knew just how hard he was pushing for me to go to Princeton. Uh, I must say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because my son's a, uh, a nice uh, high school player in his own regard, and uh, I'm kind of uh, pushing him a little bit the same way. So uh, another compromise may be headed our way in our family. Stephen, you've got to be proud of not only – the Cowboys uh, branding in the AT&T Stadium, but also how you've developed the worldwide brand beyond just the four corners of the facility in Arlington. Yeah, well, you know, it all started, uh, I must say, uh, Jerry challenged, uh, uh, you know, our family. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, it's not just me. I've got great partners and my sister Charlotte and my brother Jerry. And then, of course, the rest of our uh, A-team, our our C-suite team, to really, uh, you know, tell us at the end of the day the way he felt is you don't actually own the Dallas Cowboys. You just buy the right uh, to get a chance to run with the ball. And, you know, his big challenge to us is as great as the Cowboys uh, were in terms of their brand, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how well they were known. And, you know, at the time, obviously still America's team when we were bought into the team in 89, uh, his big challenge is we're going to need to leave this in a better place than when we've got our hands around it. And uh, certainly I think he's lived up uh, to to all that between, as you mentioned, uh, building a new stadium for the franchise. Uh, Texas Stadium was obviously an amazing place with a great brand. Uh, but uh, certainly AT&T Stadium now stands as, you know, one of the top, if the not top venue in all of sports. And uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, I think it was the first stadium to cross that billion-dollar uh, uh, marker in terms of uh, where things were headed, and now you see that on a regular basis. But uh, that was uh, obviously one of a big, one of the big, big projects. And then, of course, the second is the one you mentioned, the star. And uh, the challenge here was to take practice facilities to a new level, and I give him a lot of credit. He didn't want to just build a, a practice facility uh, where players just uh, came to work out and, you know, there wasn't uh, wasn't really touched by your fans, which most practice facilities aren't. Uh, they weren't true business in terms of uh, revenue generating and making business sense. And you know, I think we've been able to do that with the Star. This is, uh, you know, it's more than just a practice facility. It's an amazing partnership uh, with high school sports, which we're the most proud of. The 
uh, Frisco Independent School District, who had $90 million budgeted to build an indoor stadium uh, for the community here in Frisco, and they put that on the table along with some other incentives. And, uh, you know, as you well know, that's all we need is a good head start, and then we're going to end up uh, spending a lot more money. And here we are about $750 million later uh, at the star with a, a 400,000-square-foot office building of which we uh, occupy about 100 of it for 100,000 of it for our corporate headquarters. And we have a 12,000-seat indoor high school stadium that doubles as our indoor stadium. It's all things that our fans can come out and touch and tour and be a part of. People can have special events. Uh, we have about 250,000 square feet of retail uh, right next to an Omni Hotel, 300 rooms, full-service hotel, and then a, a very unique partnership with Baylor Scott & White, which is a day surgery center but also has one of the great wellness centers in the country in terms of both uh, preventative and uh, medicine as well as having some of the greatest doctors for those athletes who, uh, high school athletes who have a shoulder or back surgery that want to be fixed by the same people who work on Tony Romo or any of our other athletes, you can come here. And then on top of that, we have, you know, some unique concepts, a Cowboys Fitness Center and a, uh, as well as a Cowboys Club, which is a, a dinner club. Our fans can come and overlook the practice field. And then, of course, uh, obviously, we always have to have a great place where you can uh, you know, buy our merchandise, uh, be involved in our brand. So, you know, that's a very, very quick summary, but it's uh, certainly something uh, that we think we're only about halfway through it. We're always looking for the next big idea. How much of your entrepreneurial and, and, and development life here, you and your dad, are vision versus best practices? It's one of those conundrums and dynamics that everybody tries to seek a balance in. And Give me your sense of the balance between the two. I must say it's a nice balance, and it's hard to say whether it's 50-50, whether it's 40-60. Uh, Jerry has a great uh, vision about himself, entrepreneurial vision, that also believes that if you build things of quality, to some degree build and they will come, uh, then you have a, a, an inordinate chance uh, for the business and the best practices side uh, to come to the top. And uh, certainly the challenge was for our team, uh, for our family, for our management team, uh, to at least be able to show him, uh, you know, where it had a really fighting chance to, to be a solid business. And on top of that, also build it to the quality that's expected uh, by our Cowboy fans, uh, certainly something uh, my sister Charlotte does along with my mother Jean. Uh, you know, they expect nothing but the best. And so then you've got to, then, uh, therein lies where the premiums have to come in and the innovation has to come in. Uh, to get the returns that you look for in a typical business, uh, which at the day Jerry's always believed, uh, you know, and that's probably where him and tech separated, is, uh, is if you're healthy, if you have resources, then you can take the brand even further. I think Tex was great at building the brand. Uh, I'm not so sure that his forte was monetizing the brand. Jerry has certainly challenged everybody to build a brand, but the bigger part of his uh, you know, of his goals at the end of the day, which he thinks makes for a healthier brand and franchise, is to monetize it. And uh, uh, when you have the resources, then you can you can build assets like AT&T Stadium, uh, the Star in Frisco, and all the elements and the assets that go in the Star. So uh, you've got it, uh, Rick. It's a fine line, but it's a, a mix that you have to have. And uh, 
certainly I think, uh, you know, through Jerry's leadership, and uh, as we all know, uh, for all the right reasons, uh, both on and off the fields going into the Hall of Fame, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think that's why he's uh, uh, that's why he's headed there uh, this year, is uh, for all the uh, vision uh, as well as the best practices, the the business side of it that he's brought to the table for the NFL. Yeah, amazing combination. A couple more, and then we'll let you get back to outsmarting your opponents on draft day. The idea of uh, of family risk is an interesting one. I assume after family meetings, all of you, the brothers and sisters, and and, and mom and dad, when uh, when Jerry reaches for the sky and the uh, ROI and the return is not guaranteed, and certainly nobody can point to uh, examples of where he takes the safe choice. So do you go to bed some nights and saying, how did I get into this? Oh, there's no doubt. I think we've all had those sleepless <laughs> nights. And, uh, you know, the tables have turned a little bit. I must say, Jerry, uh, you know, obviously when he bought the team, he risked his entire fortune, our uh, family fortune that he had made in the old business and put it all on the line to get to own the Cowboys and certainly had to take uh, a, an amazing brand that Tex Schramm and Clint Murkison and Bum Bright were a part of and monetize that. Uh, uh, it was the most ever paid, and it was actually losing money when he got his hands on it. And then he turned around and obviously did the same thing with AT&T Stadium. I really danced with the devil again. Uh, happened to have about a 40-foot hole in the ground when uh, there was an economic downturn, uh, you know, in 2000 and six, seven, and eight. And so when the star came around, uh, you know, there he was sitting in his early 70s, and he said, you know, I'm ready to maybe enjoy this. Maybe you and uh, your brother and sister should uh, do this uh, later on. And uh, But uh, yeah, as we all know, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, you got to meet opportunity when it presents itself. We got that from Jerry, and, you know, that's where the pressure came to really show him the path uh, for it to be good business. And, uh uh, we were able to convince him of that, but as you, as you so well say, there's many nights uh, that we all lay awake and wondering why we're pushing something or why we're heading in a certain direction. But uh, you know, we we've had good fortune, and I think that's what happens when well, you associate yourself with an uh, an amazing brand like the Cowboys. An amazing brand, brand, an amazing family. Here's the final one, and, and you can answer it as short and long as as you want. I fear that uh, that knowing what the right, the right answer is, you, you got to get back to the draft table real quick. But what does the brand look like broadly defined in the next ten years? Well, I, I think that's a great question. I think we're at a time, uh, you know, in business, uh, you know, where we are in the world right now with the social media, with the way all the different mediums are changing in terms of uh, what our future is, how we're going to communicate uh, to the millennials, to the, uh, to the Gen Zs of the world in terms of how they digest, in terms of how they uh, take in their content and uh, it's a challenge, and uh, we've got to be nimble. I think nimble is just a, a huge, huge word in terms of uh, being able to make, uh, uh, you know, decisions quickly, but also not leaving behind what brought you. And, uh, you know, our networks, uh, our network television, the basics, uh, obviously you can then get into uh, cable and satellite TV. All these partners of ours have certainly played a huge role and bringing our brand where it is today. But we also know, uh, you know, that our future takes in content and digest content uh, in a way that's different than the way we did it. So, uh, 
you know, our brand's going to evolve. And in order for it to evolve, we have to keep up with, uh, you know, with our young people. And uh, it'll be a challenge, but it's something that we welcome. I think we've got very, very smart people uh, at the league level and the NFL level. And uh, certainly uh, we're going to be there as an organization with some of the top young people coming in our organization to uh, uh, really guide us and show us how how we'll challenge and how we'll uh, hopefully come up with uh, good answers as we move forward. Yeah, smart people, but they understand how important it is to be inspired by an unbelievable once-in-a-generation vision, and that's you and your family. Stephen, thank you very much for the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, great being on, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.